Well, turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke as we continue in our exposition here in Luke's Gospel. And that to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. We began looking at the chapter last Lord's Day and we will continue here in Luke chapter 3. And I'll begin reading from verse 7. Luke chapter 3, verse 7. He said, Therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Father, we pray now as we enter into a time in which you speak to us from your word. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would illumine our minds and so affect our hearts that we would in turn give greater worship and praise. Help us to receive this word as it really is, not as the word of men, but as the word of the living God, to whom we desire to please, in whose name we pray. Amen. We began last Lord's Day to understand the ministry of John the Baptist. He was God's prophet to herald the coming of the Son of God, to make ready the way of the Lord. He was the forerunner to prepare the people for the salvation which was promised from ages past. And so following 430 years of prophetic silence, John the Baptist emerged from the wilderness as the voice crying out to the people of God. Now before we continue here in Luke chapter 3, one might wonder what John was doing prior to delivering his first sermon to the people. Following his birth, Luke tells us in chapter 1, verse 60, And the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. For all of his life, until he reached the age of maturity, he was a son of the desert, living in the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness doing some unusual things. His diet consisted of eating short-horned grasshoppers and honey made from bees. His attire was made up of camel's hair and a leather belt. And what we need to understand is that living in a desert wilderness and surviving on insects and wearing a hairy outfit was just as strange then as it is today. It was very odd. And you see, that was the point. Eating strange food and wearing strange clothes was the purpose. 
John was simply following a pattern. Listen to what God told the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 20. Go and loose the sackcloth from your waist and take off your sandals from your feet. And it says there in Isaiah that he did so, walking naked and barefoot. Well, why? To serve as an example. Then the Lord said in Isaiah, As my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years, as a sign and as a warning against Egypt and Cush, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptian captives and the Cushite exiles, both young and old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered. Isaiah had to carry out his prophetic ministry, start naked for three whole years to make his point. In order to illustrate the shame in which God would bring upon Egypt, the prophet had to bear the shame himself. The prophet Ezekiel followed this pattern. He had to lie on his side for the same number of days for however many years in which Israel had sinned. 390. For 390 days, Ezekiel had to physically lie down on his left side and bear the sin of the house of Israel as a display of God's judgment. And when his dramatic task was completed, he had to lay on his right side for 40 days to bear the sin of the house of Judah. But it wasn't over. Afterwards, he had to publicly cook his food over a pile of his own dung. Think about that. Cooking your food, a steak over a pile of not charcoal, but burning poo. That's disgusting. I'm surprised you didn't have a reaction there. (laughs) What was the pattern for God's prophets? To literally live out their message. To visually practice what they preached. No matter how severe, no matter how drastic, no matter how shameful. In order to get God's message across at all costs. And so what do we find John doing? Living his life apart from all the cities of men. Living in the scorching sands of the wilderness. Eating locusts and wild honey. God had him live in a strange place. God had him eat strange food. God had him wear strange clothing in order to preach a strong message. A message of repentance. Living a life contrary to a wicked generation. Following not the patterns of the world, but something altogether strange and different. Conducting oneself apart from all others in separateness. Turning from the sinful evils of the people. This is what John the Baptist was doing in the wilderness. Living out in dramatic fashion the message he would preach. But now as he comes out of the wilderness, that personal demonstration is turned is turned into a, a thundering sermon. And this is what God would have John do now in the public presence of the people. He would have John preach. This would be his prophetic task. Yes, we might call John the Baptist the Baptist. But this Baptist was a preacher. Every gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they describe John's ministry as one of preaching. Listen to how his ministry is summarized in John chapter 10, verse 41. 
John did no signs. He did no miracle. But everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. God had John be about one thing. No signs, no miracles, no healings, no jaw-dropping displays of God's power, no supernatural demonstrations, but just preaching. He was to preach God's Word. And this is what we find him doing here in Luke chapter 3. And this is what we're going to devote our time to. You'll remember from last week in verses 1 through 6, we looked at John's ministry as God's prophet. Here in verses 7 through 14, our focus will be John's ministry as God's preacher. And one of the first things we observe about John's preaching, and we touched on this a little, is that he unashamedly confronted sinners. If you're taking notes, that's our first observation here. He boldly confronted sinners. Remember what he called his audience? A brood of vipers. A bunch of poisonous snakes. He called them hypocrites. That's how he started his sermon. And what a way to do so. Again, who gives such an introduction? Especially in preaching to a congregation for the very first time. John does this. And it's because his head wasn't turned towards popularity. He cared not who was offended by his words. When he spoke, he didn't appeal to their felt needs. Rather, he spoke clearly and fearlessly. His message was deliberately harsh. And that to awaken his listeners to the reality of their circumstances. You brood of vipers. In other words, he calls them the offspring of snakes. And to the crowd that was hearing this, without a doubt, without a doubt, brought them back to the beginning of Scripture, to the garden, and to the ancient serpent. They saw the obvious connection, linking them back to the devil. Now again, who in the right mind begins their sermon by describing the people as the children of the devil? If you did that today, people would be up and out of their seats in huge protest. But John knew the kind of people who were in the crowd. There were those who had assumed that their faith had resided in their heritage. That they were good. And that they were godly. Because they had Abraham as their father. That God had surely blessed them. That God had surely saved them because they had the blood of Abraham pumping through their veins. But John came to them and he said, you have your family lineage all wrong. And he said this in verse 8. Don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to take these stones and raise them up for children for Abraham. In other words, John says to them, it's not that you, you come from Abraham. But you come from the devil. You're not the children of Abraham. But you're the offspring of vipers. Now, I can imagine a lot of people accusing John here of being very rude and being very unloving. But we have to be careful of doing such a thing because if we do, we need to be consistent and place the same kind of judgment upon another preacher. It's because Jesus confronted people who claimed to know God because of their birthright. 
And here's what Jesus said in John 8, 45. If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did, but now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing what your father did. You are of your father, the devil. Those words came out of the mouth of the person who perfectly loved God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. And who perfectly loved his neighbor as himself. You see, John and Jesus, they were speaking truth. Now, who is John and Jesus speaking to? The religious hypocrite. Matthew's gospel account gives us a better idea of this crowd. It says there, but when John saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers. It was to the Pharisees and to the Sadducees. The religious and the social elite of the day. They were the uh, influencers of Israel. They dictated how the people worshipped, how the people lived. They prided themselves as being pious and holy. But they were faithless hypocrites. And notice how John preached to them. With boldness. With directness. He didn't strike their egos. He struck their consciences. He was unafraid of their feelings. And told them what God wanted them to hear. The issue in the church today, beloved, is that there are not enough plain speaking preachers. Listen to what the 19th century Anglican J.C. Ryle says. A morbid dislike to strong language. An excessive fear of giving offense. A constant flinching from directness and plain speaking. Are unhappily too much the characteristics of the modern Christian pulpit. And you want to know what? He said this in 1858. 1858. Think about that for a moment. If he said this about the state of the church over 150 years ago, I wonder how he would describe the modern pulpit today. How many preachers are controlled by a desire for popularity? Not free from the fear of offending others. Seldom mentioning sin. Refraining from anything remotely condemning. Speaking generally and carelessly. Church, you see, I think you already know this. But you don't want any any of that kind of preaching. You want to get as far away as you can from The pulpit who gives you that kind of preaching. That's not preaching. What's missing in the contemporary church today are those preachers that the world would call strange. Whose words are foreign and absolutely unlike what they hear from the world. J.C. Ryle, he adds, to be charitable when Christ is not, to be silent when Christ speaks, is treachery to men's souls. You see, God's word points us to a different path when it says, woe to you, woe to you when people speak well of you. Paul admitted, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be, what? A servant of Christ. And so firstly, notice that John preached with utter boldness and that because secondly, he knew the severity of their sin. 
sin, if you didn't know, has very real consequences. John told the crowds that came to be baptized by him, notice in chapter 3, verse 7, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? The subject of God's wrath is always offensive to human nature. We would rather be told of peace and not of danger. I can get why it's not an easy topic to address. But if we are to truly help souls, you cannot not talk about the wrath of God. The loving Savior who spoke so graciously of the way to heaven also used the plainest language about the way to hell. In Mark 9, Jesus referred to hell as the place where the fire never goes out. You see, we would be outright lying to people if we were to tell them that there is no wrath. And the way that we often go about communicating that lie is by not talking about it at all. You see, in much of our evangelism, the temptation is to simply leave that part out. But never will a man flee until he sees that there is a real cause to be afraid. Never will he seek heaven until he is convinced that there is a risk of falling into hell. And how many churches will you hear the message, flee from the wrath of God which is to come? You see, the desire of those who stand behind this pulpit is to tell the truth. There is a wrath to come for the impenitent. That it is possible for a man to be lost as well as to be saved. That if you refuse Christ, you will forever live in the torments of God's righteous anger in the flames of hell. But what is standard in pulpits today is a diluted message. A message that speaks nothing of sin, nothing of the consequences of sin. And sadly, people go to church today and they don't even know what the real message is. They are unaware and uninformed of the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. John said, flee from the wrath to come. But instead, people attend church each and every Sunday thinking all they need to do is flee from their loneliness or to flee from their unhappiness or to flee from their absence of any purpose. That Jesus came to deal with those emotional issues. Jesus came to deal with our sin. And he came to deal with sin because of the fact that men and women and children are under the condemnation of God. Jesus came to save sinners from what? From loneliness? From unhappiness? From lack of purpose? He came to save sinners from God's wrath. That the greatest danger that human beings face is the holy wrath of God against our sin. And herein lies the problem. That to ignore the consequence, to disregard the severity, to dilute the message, will only serve to encourage souls to persevere in their sin. To foster in their minds the devil's 
old delusion, you shall not surely die. That's the lie. J.C. Ryle, he helps us again by telling us this. That minister is surely our best friend who tells us honestly of danger and warns us to flee from the wrath to come. The religion, he says, in which there is no mention of hell is not the religion of John, is not the religion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice what John told the crowds. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, why did, he, why did he say that? These people had obviously made their way to the Jordan River to come to John and that to be baptized. Well, wasn't that a good thing? We learned that this baptism was a baptism of repentance. For Jews who were renouncing their Jewishness as a means of Meriting favor with God. And so why did John just go nuclear on the crowd? It's because while some were truly repentant. Those he was addressing. Weren't. You see they were merely coming to get in on the external act. As if to flee from wrath yet while holding on to their sins. It was all a part of their ritual, their routine, their religiosity. They came to John looking for some of that water in order that they could feel good about themselves as if they really did something when, when in reality it did nothing. In other words, they were insincere. They, they were fake. And so John described them as snakes attempting to slither away from a burning fire. He says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? They wanted to get out of the danger, but remain a snake. With their hearts unaffected, with their natures unchanged, to have the outward sign of forgiveness without the inner transformation that repentance requires. And you see, this then is a warning for us. Because everything that I've just talked about describes us. Not the irreligious, but the religious. Not those who are ignorant of the things of God, but those who are very well versed in them. John is preaching to people like us who know what to do and know what to look like, who know how to act, who know how to say the right things, who know the routine, who can go down the list and check off all the externals. But the searching question is this, has transformation taken place? Is faith genuine? Are you bearing fruit in keeping with repentance? Now, what logical conclusion can you come to? If no change has taken place, that very, very likely that you're not really a Christian at all. The Puritan Matthew Mead, he says this, There are many in the world that are almost, and yet but almost Christians. Many that are near heaven, and yet are never near. Many that are within a little of salvation, yet shall never enjoy the least salvation. They are within the sight of heaven, yet shall never have a sight of God. 
That comes from a sermon that he preached titled, The Almost Christian. And he says it's a dangerous thing to be almost a Christian. And that it can still quiet and still the conscience. But to be almost is to be not one at all. Do you find yourself in this peril? Listen to the warning from John in chapter 3, verse 9. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. There are no almost Christians in heaven. Well, if you find yourself thinking right now, well, what more do I need to do? Do I need to do more service? Do I need to sign up for this? More devotion? More sacrifice? Do I need to start going out to this? Then I'm afraid you still don't get it. There's nothing you can do to somehow close that gap to get yourself into heaven. To be almost Christian is to be so very far. John tells us that God has a divine axe and it's not that he's cutting away at the tree. But he's come to the last swing. The root is exposed. And the final swing is about to be swung. And in a matter of a moment. The tree is completely coming down. And that to be thrown into the fire. If you feel yourself. And if you know yourself. Under the judgment of a holy God. Repent and turn to Jesus Christ. Right now. Repent and believe upon Him who can save you from your sins and from the wrath of God. Who Himself bore that very wrath upon the cross. Who gave Himself as a sinless and perfect offering. Who suffered and died and rose again from the grave. Who gives ruined sinners the free gift of eternal life. To the almost Christian, abandon your spiritual pride and come to Christ. Turn away from your false religion and turn to the Savior. Repent of all your self-righteousness and believe upon Jesus. Well, what can we observe from John's preaching? Firstly, that he boldly confronted sinners. And secondly, that he knew the severity of sin. And now thirdly, he called sinners to repentance. And it may be that you're sitting there and you're listening, and you're asking, well, what is repentance? Because I've heard that word used a lot of times here, but I don't really know what that means. Repentance is a turning from sin. But not only a turning from sin, but a turning to God. It is a change of mind, and a change of heart, and a change of direction and this is what john was calling his audience to and to turn away from sin means to inevitably turn towards god which is why you'll often hear the word repentance coupled with the word faith faith and repentance they belong together each term implies the other one cannot exist Without the other, repentance and faith both describe 
the same action, just from different perspectives. Repentance is viewed in relation to sin as a turning away from sin, while faith is viewed in relation to Christ as a turning to Him. And so you see the person who trusts in Christ simultaneously turns away from sin. In believing, he repents. And in repenting, he believes. A way to illustrate trusting faith is like this, that by nature, our hands, our hands are, are full of sin. Full of sin and full of self and our own self-righteousness. But hands that are full are unable to take hold of Christ. When I come to Christ, I must come empty-handed. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling, is what we often sing. In taking hold of Christ, I empty all that is in my hands. And that which had prevented me from trusting in Him falls from my hands to the ground. And so you see, the old sinful life cannot be held on to with hands that take hold of the Savior. Which is why repentance and faith is never a work. It's not something that I do in my own power, something that I in my own power must do in order for God to do something. But repentance and faith is a grace. It's a gift from God. And that He enables me to turn from sin and to trust in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Paul tells the Ephesian church, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God. And you see, one of the misunderstandings about repentance is that it is more than just being sorry. It is more than simply regret. Jesus, he gives us an example in the prodigal son. If you remember in the prodigal son, the story he had taken a share of the inheritance. He had squandered it all in reckless living. And so he found himself living with the pigs. And he was so hungry that he was willing to eat what the pigs were eating. And no one was there to give him any help. Well, why was he there? It's because he had turned his back on his father and his father's home. He thought he could do better. He, he wanted to go at it alone. He, he desired freedom in his life. But what happened was that he made a total mess of his life. And while sitting in the pigsty, he, he came to himself. And it's not that he continued to sit there feeling sorry, sorry for himself and feeling regret for the decisions that he had made. Feeling sorry and regret alone would have left him exactly where he was. Which is why sorrow or regret is not repentance, but something more. Repentance brought the young man back to his father and back to his father's love and embrace. To bring this story into our own context, repentance is not simply cleaning up your life, but it is a transformation, a turning from and a turning to. You see, the message of the gospel is not feel sorry and clean up your life, it's not self-righteous moral adjustment. Jesus doesn't say, clean yourself up, but He says, come to Me. And in coming to Me, acknowledge your distinct need of Me. 
And what's so important to understand for us as Christians here in this church also is this. We are never not in need of Jesus Christ. We must always be turning to Him. This is why repentance isn't a one-time thing that you do in a moment in time only to go back to your sins, but it's a lifelong forsaking of sin and a turning to Christ. Which is why John in chapter 3, verse 8, he says this here, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That's not a one-time thing. When the German reformer Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the doors of the castle church in Wittenberg, his first might have been the most important. And it said, when our Lord Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. The whole life of believers. And that flew straight in the face of the Roman Catholic Church who mistranslated the word repentance for do penance. In which they constructed this elaborate system whereby a person was accepted by God and your sins were satisfied if you went through all these various rituals of penance. And what they created was exactly what John condemned here in Luke chapter 3. Now as John called the people in the crowds to repent, there were those who did. There were those who forsook their sins and they, they turned to God. And in a, in a desire to live in obedience to God, look at verse 10, the crowds, they asked him, what shall we do? What shall we do? You see, true repentance brings about fruit in our lives. The fruit of obedience. And that fruit will look different in each of our lives. Notice the different groups of people who approached John. The first was the general public, the crowd. The second were tax collectors. The third were soldiers. And so to the public, what did he tell them to do? Look at verse 11. Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Verse 12, tax collectors, they also came to be baptized. And they said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he tells them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. And then there was a third group, the soldiers. Verse 14, they asked him, what shall we do? And he said to them, don't extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. Now, what's very interesting, church, is notice in all these three groups of all these different groups of people, the manner of life in which they were going about in their sins had to do with money and material possessions. Isn't that interesting here? Money and material possessions. People were stingy. Tax collectors were greedy. Soldiers were discontent with what they had, so they extorted money. Not much has changed. 2,000 years later, people struggle the same. Money and material possessions. And they quietly, those things quietly, they own us. Do they not? That the sins which held all these different people back from looking to God was their money. Whether it was a surplus or whether it was a lack of it. But in hearing the message from John, 
They were moved to turn from their sin and in faith towards God. And what did repentance in their lives, what did it look like? Generosity and charity and contentment. John is telling us that the way we hold on to our money and our material possessions in relationship to others, in relationship to ourselves, is a good indicator of the authenticity and health of our spiritual lives. Whether or not we are bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. But you know very well we can't stop here. These examples show us that every situation in life has its own temptations and struggles and sins that seek to control us. We often grumble at work. We become impatient with our spouses and our kids. We we get angry. We, We gossip with others. We become bitter when someone wrongs us. We live in impurity. We have self-pity when we suffer. And the list of vices, they go on and on and on. And there are too many sins to name and there are too many sins to count. What kind of sinner are you? What sins are attempting to take hold of you? J.C. Ryle has been a great help for me this week in preparing this sermon. And he said this, let us find out our own peculiar corruptions. Let us know our own besetting sins. And ask ourselves, are we real? Are we sincere? Then let us begin by looking at home and looking within. While there is no sin so small that doesn't send a man to hell, there is no sin so great in which Christ cannot forgive. John Newton, as you know, who wrote Amazing Grace, as he was getting old, he began to lose his memory. And he said, two things I remember. That I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. church and closing, that's important for us to know and to remember that it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. And so church, let us repent of our sins and turn in trusting faith to Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come and we confess that we have sinned and We have sinned much. Sins that we have committed knowingly and sins we have committed in ignorance. Would we not only grieve and be sorrowful over our sins, but in abandoning them, turn in trusting faith to Christ who took our sins and paid them all. And so all to Him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but Christ has washed them white as snow. Grant to us in our hearts a godly sorrow that leads to repentance and not a worldly sorrow that leads to death. Give us the grace to trust Him more today than we did yesterday. Help us to sing now in humble gratitude 
in the name of Jesus, in whom we have redemption through his blood, for the forgiveness of our sins we pray. Amen.